you, Judy and Heather, for that announcement. There's a lot of reasons to not get your foster license or to go through that process, but I love that this ministry of our church is giving you many reasons to just get an application or write a check. It's a great, great help. Thank you for that announcement. Well, last week I read an article about the exploits of a man named Parvez Henry Gill. He's a Christian businessman in Pakistan's largest city, Karachi. And the Christians in this overwhelmingly Muslim town have faced intense persecution for decades, and it's actually intensifying recently. And so as a, an influential leader in his community, Parvez Gill has spent years trying to figure out ways to protect Christians from the violence and the persecution. You see, a lot of the Christians have simply left town, making the Christians an increasingly um, bigger minority um, from Karachi. Okay? And so he's trying to figure out ways that he can protect them, keep them um, in this town. So about four years ago, God came to him in a dream and he said, Parvez, I want you to do something for the people there. Do something good for the Christians in this town. So he wrestled with it for a little bit, and he decided to build a cross, like a big cross, the largest cross in Asia, right? And so here we go. In this increasingly Muslim town, there's a, under construction there's a giant cross. This is where the story gets good. About four years ago, he gets a bunch of Muslim workers, because literally this is all he could find to help build his tower, right? <laughs> so they started working on this 140-foot tower and then a couple of weeks ago right they realized wait a minute we're building a cross <laughs> and so uh, as you can imagine they did not like this overnight Gil lost most of his help and the story made international headlines and that's where I read about it the cross as you can see from this picture is still under construction uh, but it will be completed soon here's an interesting side note in a couple of the articles I read um, some of the Muslim workers actually have stuck around to help finish this cross they respect this Christian businessman, so much they wanted to help him. And I think that's quite a testimony to this man. Um, but anyway, as you can imagine, this cross is creating quite a stir in Karachi, Pakistan. There's a lot of nervous Christians. They faced persecution for, for years, and now this giant cross is it's like a bullseye, and it's sure to attract more violence. And so there, there's a lot of worry as this cross gets bigger and bigger. But, but Parvez Henry Gill is not worried. He's confident that God will protect him. In the articles that I read, he cites Psalm 91, and he says that, you know, God will protect anyone who does his will. He's doing God's will. God will protect him. So according to Gill, the cross is a giant symbol of safety, of protection. Now, there's a lot we could say about this, and I'm sure you've got a lot of thoughts processing in your mind right now about this project. Um, but instead of, of, of slamming this, let's just compare it to another international headline we heard recently about the cross. You remember this February, ISIS released another video of a mass execution. Dragged 21 Egyptian Christians onto the beaches of northern Libya. They mock them and they behead them and send the video across the world. I've not seen the video, but um, very clearly on the bottom of the video, I've heard the subtitle, People of the Cross. People of the Cross. The, the cross did not protect these Egyptian Christians who were working in Libya. The cross, in fact, was the very reason that they died. And so within a few months, we've heard of stories of men dying in the name of the cross and others building a giant 140-foot, literally bulletproof cross to hide behind. And so how do we reconcile this? To some, Christianity is an invitation to suffering and death, and to others, Christianity is a status of symbol and power and comfort. Right? Now, I'm not suggesting that there are two paths. There's two forms of Christianity that you can choose from. You can cho choose the comfortable side or you can choose the suffering side. Which one will you pick this morning? 
That's not what I'm, I'm suggesting at all, but I am suggesting that throughout church history, men and women have creatively tried to take the sting out of the cross and take the suffering out of the gospel and make Christianity something that it was never meant to be. A comfortable status of power, symbol, a status of, of safety, luxury, dominance. It's not that way. The New Testament actually addresses this at every turn. You, can take, you, you just can't take the cross out of the gospel. If you've been here the last two weeks in our study of 2 Timothy, you've seen Paul plead to Timothy to join him in suffering for the gospel. Timothy, the gospel brings you life and immortality, and it is far better than you can even imagine, and yet the, the gospel brings suffering. So prepare to suffer, Timothy. You can count on it. We've looked at this the last two weeks. It's a really powerful passage in Timothy. This morning, we're going to footnote our sermon series in 2 Timothy and explore the same theme in another portion of the scriptures. We're going to be in Mark chapter 10. And so if you have your Bibles this morning, go ahead and make your way to Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at two very familiar stories, stories you've read many times before, but they're going to demonstrate two very different approaches to Jesus, a comfortable approach and an approach that just wants Jesus, no, no matter where it leads. And so we're going to begin in verse 35. And we're going to read to the end of the chapter. So turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 10, verse 35, or your phones, whatever. We have it on the screen as well. I just want you to look at the text this morning as we read it. Mark 10, 35 to 52. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and they said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand is not mine to grant. But it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called, the, him, uh, Jesus called them to him, and he said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples in a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out, saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and he said, call him. And he called the blind man saying, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprung up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humbly come to your word now, knowing that we are 
blind and deaf without you. We're ignorant, immature. We, we cannot process the scriptures this morning without you. And so we ask that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word very clearly this morning. That you would penetrate our hearts and that you would change us and make us true disciples of you. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Now, we just read two stories, and on the surface, the, they don't seem to have much in common. You got James and John asking him a random question. Jesus rebukes them. And then you got Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, right? You may have always read these as just two random stops in Jesus' ministry. It sounds like a normal day in the life of Christ. He tells his disciples, um, you're being dumb right now, and he heals a blind man. This is just a normal day in the life of Christ, right? But Mark is actually going to put these two together, I think, to, to show us right next to each other, two models of discipleship. Two different, very different approaches to him. And so we're going to compare these. Our outline for the morning is simple. We're going to look at James and John's request, and we're going to look at Bartimaeus' request, and then we're going to spend a little time at the end comparing the two, asking what is a true disciple? How do we become a true disciple? What are characteristics of true discipleship? And so we'll start with James and John and work our way through. These are fascinating stories. Now, who are James and John? These were the sons of Zebedee. Mark chapter 3 actually shows us that Jesus had nicknamed them. Do you remember their nickname? The Sons of Thunder, right? <laughs> and we understand a little bit why here, because in verse 35, they're going to walk up to Jesus and drop a bomb. We want to share in your glory. Bold question, right? I don't know if any of us would have the boldness to ask this. They had the boldness to ask this question. If we actually take a second to locate it in Mark's gospel and read it in context, it's going to be a pretty dumb question too, a pretty insensitive question, Okay. So let's, let's place ourselves in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is arranged geographically, which means that you need a map to get the most out of it. Okay, the first eight chapters, Jesus is going to be in the northern fishing regions of Galilee. He's going to spend his time bouncing around the Sea of Galilee, doing most of his miracles out of the public eye around the blue-collar fishermen in the north. Chapters 11 through 16 is going to be that one famous week, Passion Week in Jerusalem. And so chapters 8 through 10 are going to describe the journey from the north to the south. That's the book of Mark. That's how you read Mark. It's geographic, this journey from the north to the south. Chapters 8 through 10 is going to be the heart of the book. This is where he's going from north to south, and he's going to teach his disciples about discipleship. And on that journey, three very distinct times, he's going to stop, look his disciples in the eye, and say, when I get to Jerusalem, I will be treated horribly. I will be beaten. I will be murdered. Don't worry, I'll rise again. He lays his heart out clearly three times. That's this journey, very tense times in, in, in the life of Christ. But every time he said this, his disciples would immediately follow with a very crazy question. They just completely misunderstood it. And so Jesus would correct them, give them a lesson in discipleship, continue on the road, okay? The story that we just read with James and John follows the third and final prediction. Read it with me in verse 33. Just get this idea, just write in context. Jesus tells them, for the third time in three chapters, see, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus is very clear about this. I mean, detailed. They're going to spit on me when I get to Jerusalem. It's going to be messy. I'm going to die. He's just laid out his mission and, and laid out his heart and been very vulnerable for the third time 
with his disciples. And this is the context for James and John's bomb. They slide up to him, right, to the front of the line, and they just say, Jesus, we want you to do whatever we ask. I love that little detail. It's a very bold question. We want to do whatever we ask. This is great seven-year-old logic. I used to do this all the time when I was seven. Hey, I have a question, but I'm not going to ask it until you promise to say yes, okay? Right? It's, it's a win-win. But it only works on five- and six-year-old kids. Right? <laughs> Parents don't take that bait, and Jesus doesn't either. He says very clearly, what do you want me to do for you? He's just laid out his heart. I'm going to be spit in a few days. And they say, hey, we uh, have a question for you. And he just says, what do you want me to do for you? Verse 37, they give their reply. Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Mark is inviting us to roll our eyes at the text right now. Oh my goodness, did they really just ask it? They did, they just asked it, right? It's a very dumb and insensitive question. He's clearly described his mission. There's no getting around it. It's gonna be hard, it's gonna be difficult. And they just missed it. But before we roll our eyes and move on and call them crazy, they're just, they're just idiots, right? We need to explore it a little bit. If we just blow past every bad question in the Bible, we won't learn a thing. You see, the Bible records bad questions because we ask bad questions. And so we need to see, can we find some of our own thinking in James and John's thinking? And I think we can. There's actually a way to read this, and I, th- I think James and John are trying to impress Jesus. You gotta look very closely, but I think they're actually trying to impress him, okay? They come up to Jesus and they say, we wanna sit on your right and your left. These are the, the positions of honor. The right is the best, the left, pretty, pretty good, right? <laughs> we wanna sit by your side. In this arrangement, who's number one? Who's in the middle? Jesus. This is a very Christ-centered request, isn't it? Jesus, you're amazing. You deserve all the glory and the honor. We just wanna be near you. That's a very Christ-centered request, isn't it? I think they're trying to impress Jesus. And even more, get this too, they're brothers, okay? If you have a brother or a sister, right? They come up and they just say, we just wanna be on your right and left. Interchangeable. James didn't come up and say, hey, me and my brother John wanna sit, I'd like to be on the right. I know my kids would do it like that, right? I'd like to sit on the right and (laughs) she'd like to sit over here, right? But they don't, they just go up and they say, we don't care, James and John, we, we wanna be on your right and on your left. We just want to be near you, okay? I think in the childish, immature minds of James and John, it was actually meant to be selfless. They were trying to be Christ-centered, but they were unconsciously self-centered, right? We can really easily see it. This is a very self-centered request, but this is easy for us to do. We can disguise our selfish requests in spiritual language, in Christ-centered language. Jesus, I will gladly worship you. I will raise my hands and sing with all of my heart as long as the style suits me. I'm yours, right? I'll go to your church and I'll plug in and I will, uh, I'll, I'll do everything you want me to do as long as you meet all my needs. We're a complicated family. We have a lot of needs. Just meet my needs and we'll be there. We'll serve. Jesus, I will, I will give my life for you and serve you as long as I'm recognized for my hard work. It's easy for us to do. Selfish request clothed in spiritual language. This kind of an attitude. I think what James and John are asking And what we often ask says something like this. Jesus, you are great, and so am I. You're great, and I am too. Can we share in that? Let's let's do this together. James and John, I think, come up to Jesus. They're affirming Jesus, and they're affirming themselves. We know what's going to happen in Jerusalem. You're going to dominate. No matter what you say, you're going to dominate, and we think we have a central place in that story. 
But Jesus' response is so gracious. He's looking at these kids and he responds to them, you don't know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. You see, Jesus was going to Jerusalem to receive glory. The scriptures are clear about this, that the peak of Christ's glory came on the cross. And so, yes, he was going to receive glory in Jerusalem, and he was going to be accompanied by men on his right and on his left. If you remember, these were crucified criminals on his right and on his left. That's why he looks at them and he says, you don't know what you're asking, James and John. Right? They hadn't absorbed it yet. They hadn't absorbed the nature of his mission. And so he tries to prepare them in verse 38. You don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What does he mean by this? He, he introduces two metaphors, the cup and the baptism. These have deep meaning in the church. But at this moment, he's using Old Testament imagery. The metaphors of the cup and, suffer, and the baptism are almost always linked with suffering, the cup of God's judgment. You can be submerged in the baptism waters of suffering. This is what he is talking about, essentially. You don't know what you're asking, James and John. Are you prepared to suffer like me? Are you ready to drink my cup and face what I'm about to face? It's a very tough question. And they were quick to answer. Again, they just shot block this really intimate, powerful question. They say, yes, we are. <laughs> we're ready. And I don't think they'd gotten the glory out of their minds yet. We're ready. If, if we need to suffer a little bit to get that glory, we'll gladly suffer. If we got to go through a few bad days to get to that honor and that glory, we'll, we'll do that. But I think they misunderstood the nature of discipleship. They just misunderstood him. They'd do anything for those two seats of honor. They'd be courageous and, and, and bold and brave, but Jesus had to dash their dreams. Listen to this in verse 39. He said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. This was difficult. Jesus essentially tells them, James and John, there will be no glory for you in Jerusalem. No glory. There will only be suffering. And he gently had to crush their ambition for glory and honor and recognition. He had to remove that idea and prepare them for the cross. Jesus here was preparing them for discipleship. Okay? And this should have ended the conversation, but the other disciples kind of had to keep it going, right? There's 12 men, but Jesus only had two sides, and so they began to get indignant. How dare you ask him? We deserve that spot too, right? We want that glory. We want that honor. And so they start fighting. And Jesus is just a day's journey from Jerusalem, and he looks at his church. He knows what's about to happen, and he looks at this, these men, the future church, and he sees them fighting for honor and recognition and power and control, and his heart breaks. And listen to this lesson, verse 42. You know this passage well. You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his, ran his life as a ransom for many. It's one of the most profound paragraphs in the entire Bible. Jesus is going to gather 
his disciples together and explain to them that they will have a different mindset when it comes to power and status and glory and honor and control and comfort. It's going to be completely different. You see, when the Gentiles, when, when the men and women of this world gain power, they naturally exercise it. They act like little gods. They just turn into ferocious little gods. They exercise authority and boss people around because that makes them feel important. It's natural. It's what we do. This is the kind of leadership that you and I crave. We want to climb that ladder and to, to reach that success so that we can look down on other people and show God how great we are. Jesus flips it on its head and he says, it will not be this way among you. In fact, the Greek says it more emphatically, it is not this way among you. He's not saying it, you, you really shouldn't be this way. He's saying it's not this way in the church. It won't happen. You see, it's impossible for the church of Jesus Christ to develop a system of leadership and membership that does not look like Jesus Christ. His church cannot look anything different. The church will be marked by service and suffering because the Son of Man came to serve and to suffer. That is discipleship. That's the lesson he's trying to teach them. Disciples look like Jesus. They act like Jesus. They don't act like bloodthirsty, selfish Gentile gods who gain power and exercise authority. They act like the Son of God who came to suffer and to lay down his life as a ransom for many. Hear this, if you want a Christ-centered life, if you want to be a disciple of Jesus and you want to live a Christ-centered life, prepare for a cross-centered life. Even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. We don't have any other option. We're people of the cross. We don't lust for power and control and comfort and safety. We serve and we suffer and we die in the name of Jesus who served and suffered and died for us. That's discipleship right there. And I know this is difficult and I know it goes against everything we have in our beings and this is why people always try to remove suffering from Christianity because we don't want to accept this. We don't want to live that life. We don't want to walk to the cross. So we try to remove it, but we can't. And this is why I think Mark follows this up immediately with Bartimaeus. He's going to go and tell us about Bartimaeus because Bartimaeus is the paradigm for Christian discipleship. You may have always seen this as a just a healing narrative, like Jesus just saves Bartimaeus on his way into Jerusalem, but it's not. Bartimaeus is a disciple, okay? Let's pick it up in 46. Mark tells us that the crowd comes into Jericho, all right? This is another geographical clue where we are in the story. It's the final stop to Jerusalem. So Jericho is about 20 miles outside of Jerusalem and get this 3,500 feet below Jerusalem. 20 miles, 3,500 feet below. <laughs> so that's quite a hike. This is kind of like Lenore, all right? This is your last chance for a Krispy Kreme and a tank of gas on your way up to Jerusalem. Last stop. They have to walk up the rest of the day. This is, this is it before they get to Jerusalem. And Mark tells us, as they were leaving Jerusalem, on their way out of the city, they pass a blind beggar, and he names him Bartimaeus. When he inquires and finds out that this is Jesus of Nazareth, Bartimaeus immediately stops and he screams, Jesus, son of David. He says, who is this guy? Luke tells us that he had to inquire about it. He says, this is Je Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. That's profound. What we've learned last week, and you, you know it, Nazareth is a code word for loser, right? 
What good comes out of Nazareth? Nothing. And so Bartimaeus, being from the south, being around Jericho, would have known, oh, Nazareth? Ah, forget it. No, no help here, no money. <laughs> I can't get anything. But he hears, this is Jesus of Nazareth, and he realized that something good had come out of Nazareth. I don't know how. <laughs> he just screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy. He used the messianic title. Jesus, here, here's the long-awaited king of David long-awaited king, son of David, that had come to save his people. Now, the crowd had little patience with his, his annoying cries. They told him to shut up. Maybe they had confidence to treat him like this because he was blind. If you remember a couple weeks ago, Scott just mentioned off the cuff, the, the key interaction with, with, with beggars is eye contact. If you don't want to give, you don't look them in the eye. If you do, you make eye contact, and you have that little exchange there. But imagine being a blind beggar. Imagine the difficulty of that. All you have is your voice. You just scream in the crowd. They didn't care about eye contact. He couldn't see him anyway. They had confidence to walk up and say, be quiet. He doesn't care about you. They're emboldened by his blindness. And he just has his voice and he's screaming, help, help me. And they told him to shut up. This is sad on its own. If we go behind the text just, just, a, just a bit, it's going to be ironic too and even more tragic. We need to know who's shutting him up. It says the crowd. Now, Jesus often traveled with a large crowd, okay? He would often, he was a popular figure, and so he would often collect a crowd as he walked around, okay? But this is a particular crowd. We actually know who this crowd is. Do you remember why Jesus is going to Jerusalem? He's not going on vacation. He's going to celebrate Passover, right? Jews would do this three times a year. They had three pilgrimage festivals. They would all go up to Jerusalem. And so he's with essentially the nation of Israel walking up the hill to celebrate the Passover. This happened three times a year. Now, the crowd that's going with them is also going to celebrate. This is a very festive journey, right? Festive, they're going, they're getting ready. They're getting ready to celebrate a holiday. Now we know over the years that the Jews developed some really interesting traditions on this journey. They actually had a little soundtrack or a mixtape they created on the way up the hill, okay? So they're listening to music, they're singing music, and we actually have these in our Bible. It's in the book of Psalms. If you read from Psalm 120 to 134, if you scroll over there, you're gonna see it titled Psalms of Ascent. Why are they called Psalms of Ascent? Well, the Jews would read these on their road from Jer Jericho to Jerusalem. They're ascending up the hill to Jerusalem, and so they would read these, sing these, they would get in the mood to worship during these feasts, all right? Psalms of Ascent. I want to read one of these this morning to you. Psalm 123, a psalm of ascent. Now, it is very, very possible that the crowd had this coming out of their mouths, if not rattling around their brain as they walk past Bartimaeus. They're, they're looking to the hills, and they say, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God. Till he has mercy on us. Have mercy on us, O Lord. Have mercy on us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Have mercy. Have mercy, O God. Have mercy. And they're walking up the hill, not sure if in the moment they're singing it, but they have it in their heads. They're begging for God's mercy, and they hear the cries of Bartimaeus. Mercy. Son of David, have mercy. And they look at him, and they say, shut up, Bartimaeus. Jesus doesn't have time for you. He don't want you. It's a sad irony. And yet Jesus, who we're told this journey, he's very abrupt. He's going. He's marching to Jerusalem. He's leading the crowd. Jesus stops. 
darkness to call him. He heard the cries of Bartimaeus. And if you're here this morning, take great comfort. Bartimaeus is crying mercy. And Jesus stopped and he heard him and demonstrated mercy. Take courage if you're crying out for God's mercy. He hears this. He listens to you. He called the man, blind man, throws off his cloak, jumps up, runs to him, and Jesus asks him a familiar question that I think links these two stories together. What do you want me to do for you? You remember he just asked this to James and John, and perhaps he asked this for their benefit, right? Because he had just asked this to them, and now he looks at the blind man and he says, what do you want me to do for you? It's obvious, isn't it? He asked the question, though, I think maybe to let James and John register this. He, blind man says, Rabbi, I want to see. Go, he said, your faith has healed you, healed you. And immediately he received his sight, and he followed Jesus along the road. A lot of men that were healed went home. Bartimaeus got up, and he followed him along the road. Mark is describing a true disciple. You may be interested to know this, that other than Lazarus, Bartimaeus is the only beggar with a name. And I think Mark includes his name here because the people in Mark's church knew who he was. I think Bartimaeus is the model disciple. I think he's showing them this is how Bartimaeus followed Jesus. This is how you should follow Jesus too. Unlike James and John, follow him like Bartimaeus. And so we have two models of discipleship, right? We have James and John. They wanted to be near Jesus in his glory. And we have Bartimaeus who just wanted to be near Jesus and follow him and dance up the hill to Jerusalem while the others are just scared and walking slowly. Bartimaeus is jumping all the way to the cross. I want to end with a brief comparison of these two approaches and ask just a couple of very, very simple questions to, to diagnose and to ask ourselves, what kind of a disciple are we? Have we tried to take the cross out of discipleship? Have we tried to remove suffering and service? Or are we trying to follow Christ in, for our own comfort and glory and power and status? Just a couple of questions. I see that they did a few things wrong. I, I see three. First, James and John did not know who Jesus was. James and John did not know who Jesus was. This is ironic, right? They, they had every opportunity to know who he was. They'd been with him for years. They'd slept under the stars with him. They'd been on the boats with him. They'd seen the miracles. They'd heard three predictions. I'm going to die. I'm the ransom. I'm coming to die for your sins. And they didn't know who he was. They just wanted to ride him to glory. And they missed it. Bartimaeus, though, got it right. We're not given any clue as to how he knew it, but he heard, this is Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes, no, it's not. That's the son of David. How do we know? We don't know other than the fact that God loves to put his praise on the lips of the most unlikely people, and he did. He put it on Bartimaeus' lips, and Bartimaeus somehow knew that this is the son of David, the king that had come to save, and he knew that Jesus was his last hope for salvation. If this man walked away, he would be helpless. Bartimaeus knew who Jesus was. And so here's a simple question. Do you know who Jesus is? Don't assume you know the question because you've been in church for a long time. I think all of us could write it down and get it right on a test. We intellectually know who Jesus is. But I want to ask you to examine your worship. 
Do you know who Jesus is? If you know Jesus like Bartimaeus knew Jesus and he is your only hope and you are desperate for him and if he walks away, you have no hope, worship will come. If you know Jesus like that, worship will flow out of you. If you know Jesus like James and John know Jesus though and he's your ticket to comfort and success and status, worship becomes a lot more complicated. You have to actually work for it. You have to try to conjure it up, right? Because Jesus is just for you. And so do you know who Jesus is? Very simple question, but, but take some time to process that and wrestle with that. Second, what, 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 what is the second difference between James and John and Bartimaeus? James and John didn't know who they were. They didn't have a good opinion of Jesus. And they didn't have a good opinion of themselves. They walked up to Jesus and said, we want you to do whatever we ask. They clearly had an inflated view of their own personality and their own worth. Now, they had a lot going for them. They'd given up everything to follow Jesus. They'd left their fishing nets. They'd left their families. They'd left their former way of life. And so they did have a lot going for them, and they looked like really good disciples, but they had not yet given up their ambition or their ego. They had a very high opinion of themselves, and they thought they were actually worthy of Jesus' glory. They were worthy to share in that. They thought they were better than the other 10. And I think this, rampant, or this attitude is rampant in the American church. We look to ourselves and say, we've left our former way of life. We don't associate with pagans, sinners. That's, that's done. We're disciples now. And we have left a lot of room for our own egos to flourish and thrive. And we think we're good because we do good things for God. But just like James and John, our egos have to go. There will be no glory and honor here. Only the cross. Consider Barnabas once again. He knew who he was. Nobody had to tell him who he was. He was blind. He was helpless. And he was desperate. That's why when the crowd shut him up, he says, no, I am desperate. If I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. He was helpless. And this is the key to discipleship. Do you know who you are? Is there room for your ego? Is your ego thriving? Do you find your worth in the good things that you do for God and your position and your status, or do you find it in the good things that God has done for you through Jesus Christ? Who, who do you think you are? Who, who are you? Third, finally, James and John did not know what they wanted. They did not know what they wanted. And this is the key. Jesus asked both sets of disciples the same question. What do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? We want glory. I want to see. They didn't know what they wanted. Let me say this, and I'm, I'm done. The impulse for glory is okay. The impulse to want glory and desire glory is okay. Paul promises that God is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory that will far outweigh all of the sufferings that we have ever experienced when with the ransom and glory that day. Right? It's okay. The final step in salvation is glorification. It's okay to want to be glorified with Christ. It's, it's legitimate, but here's the problem. James and John wanted it in Jerusalem. They, their timing was off. The glory would have to wait. It's just gonna have to wait, James and John. It's not coming in Jerusalem. The only thing that will happen in Jerusalem is the cross. In this present age, we suffer for the gospel. The way of the disciple in the present age is the way of the cross. There is no other way. 
Once again, let's learn from Bartimaeus. James and John wants glory. He wants what? He wants to see. He wants sight. He wants to be healed. He wants faith. What a simple and beautiful prayer that we're going to end on today. Rabbi, let me see. Give me faith. This is the prayer of the true disciple, and this is the prayer that Jesus loves to hear and answer. And so let's pray it this morning. Heavenly Father, we reaffirm this morning who you are. You're, you're glorious and you're great, and you sent your son, Jesus, not to make our lives comfortable or more bearable or safe and to give us power. Lord, you sent your son, Jesus, to die as our ransom. He suffered and bled and served for our sake. And so we affirm that this morning. We also affirm who we are. God, we are helpless, we're desperate, we're beggars, we're blind. Forgive us for having an inflated view of ourselves. Forgive us for our egos, for getting in the way of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. God, right now, we don't ask for glory. We don't ask for comfort or relief. We ask to see. We just want to know you more. We want to be true disciples. So give us faith like Bartimaeus, God. Strengthen us this morning. Give us courage and joy, Lord, after realizing that you heard us and you healed us. Give us joy to dance up the hill to Jerusalem to the cross. Give us passion and strength. All in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen.